If you would, please take out your Bibles and join me in turning to Psalm 27, which we just sang in a paraphrase. Uh, Often we've been singing out of the Psalter, but today we sing a hymn uh, based on Psalm 27. And so you will hear the themes that that um, hymn addressed here in just a moment. As we turn to God's Word, let's not neglect to turn to Him in prayer, asking for His help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful that You have been pleased to give us a lamp for our feet and a light to our path as we travel the often treacherous, difficult road home to be with you. We thank you, Father, that as we've already seen in the Psalms, you are with us on the road. You are with us in the valley of the shadow of death. I pray, Father, that you would be pleased to use your word and spirit now to comfort your people as we all live in a world of trouble and trial and temptation. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. Be pleased now, Father, through your word and by your spirit to meet your people and provide what we need this day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't remember when it started, but it's ending today, this summer psalm series, seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. Lord willing, uh, next summer we will pick up where we left off with Psalm 28, but here we are in Psalm 27, and as I think we will see, it is a good psalm with which to end as we wait for the Lord, as we wait on the Lord. Well, you've been hearing that these 150 psalms are songs and poems that have been used in the worship for the worship of God's people, both private and public, uh, from the very beginning. They, they've been Israel's songbook, and it's the hymn book and songbook for the church. And these 150 psalms are diverse, and yet they are unified around the one true and living God. Even though they're unified around this one true and living God, In doing so, they express that divine human encounter as man approaches God and God approaches man. We've seen that oftentimes we don't know the historical circumstance that led to the writing of a particular psalm. And and because of that, not knowing the details is really helpful for application because we are less likely to say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. We're more likely to say, Oh, absolutely, it applies to me. The Psalms are are incredibly practical, as I believe we will see. They are practical, and yet they are poetical. We can't read the Psalms fast. Even though we're going to look at 14 verses, it is dangerous to fly through the Psalms. We need to slow down, because the Psalms inform our mind They uh, arouse our emotions, they, they stimulate our imaginations, they direct our wills. As we heard last week from that observation of Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, the Psalms um, can in many ways be seen as poems of orientation, of disorientation, 
as psalms of reorientation, as they are both a mirror showing us what we are like, but also a window through which we can see what God is like and who God is. As we read the psalms by faith, we are transformed and not just informed. You recall that Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible, a Bible in miniature. And you've been hearing that John Calvin, another great reformer, referred to the Psalms as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. I want to, on this last day, uh, uh, quote that again, but add some things to it as I did some more study in his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms. He says this, I have been accustomed to call this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which any one can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the mind of Ben are wont to be agitated. There is no other book in which there is recorded so many deliverances, nor one in which the evidences and experiences of the fatherly providence and solicitude which God exercises toward us are celebrated with such splendor of diction. There is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. I thought that insight was very helpful because every psalm seems to be thus far one of rescue and deliverance. Rescue and deliverance. And we will see that as well in today's psalm. Now I'm going to ask a question and I need as many people here to respond with the answer as possible. What is the chief end of man? Together? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Great. Because Psalm 27, I believe, will help us not only keep our eyes on the goal, on that chief end, but also help us get there. The title of the sermon, Confident Living. I was really disappointed to find out in my study that there's no magazine with that title. I was for sure. I mean, you've got Southern Living, um, other various living magazines. I was convinced that there had to be a confident living magazine. But I couldn't find one. But what I did find is in the Cincinnati area, there is a, a, a senior citizens care program with that title, Confident Living. I found a website entitled Strong Confident Living. On that website, you read this. It's an attitude. It's an identity. It's a lifestyle. And a little bit further down, it said this in big, bold letters. I can, I will build the mindset to do anything. Confidence to be sure. But confidence with self. At the center. To be sure, Psalm 27, as we will see, is a psalm of confidence, of trust. It is all about confidence, but something other than self 
is at the center. Join with me now as I read Psalm chapter 27, verses 1 through 14. Of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up, my enemies above all above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 27 is all about confidence. But it's not about self-confidence, but rather confidence in the Lord. In Psalm 27, we will see confidence affirmed, confidence expressed, and confidence encouraged. Let's look at the first three verses. Confidence affirmed. There's a cry of confidence at the beginning, a declaration of the soul's confidence. In the background here is God's covenant with David. We see that in 2 Samuel 7. God's promise to David and his offspring about who will be ruler of Israel. That God will never leave nor forsake the line of David. It's in the background. David is going to approach God, the Lord, the one who has made himself known to his people with that Relationship that God has established and guaranteed with David. And David begins with a question, excuse me, a confession of faith and a question for faith in verse 1. The confession is this The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord 
is the stronghold of my life. My friends, what you and I believe about God matters. A few weeks ago, we we quoted, uh, I believe it was from the book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I've been recently rereading a book on marriage, and interestingly it says, um, what you think about God is the most important thing about your marriage. What you think about God. In your heart of hearts, the, the possession of faith, not just the profession of faith, what you think in the recesses of your heart about who God is and what He has done matters. And what does David say? He says, God is my light, that God brings clarity, order, and understanding, while darkness, David would later say, that it's, it's evil and it's chaotic. The light both exposes one's enemies, but it also exposes one's resources. And David will have plenty of both. He just says, God is my salvation. He's my deliverance. He says, God is the stronghold of my life. And maybe David is remembering how God protected him from enemies in the rocks. David withdrew to the rocks and he was a fortress, a refuge. It's a military image that we've already seen in Psalm, most recently in Psalm 18. This is sort of a triad of what he believes about God. He's my light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. John Stott says this, The Lord is my light to guide me, my salvation to deliver me, and the stronghold of my life in whom I take refuge. What a great confession of faith. But then David also presents a question of faith. In view of who God is, he then says this, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Now this is a confession of faith and a question for faith in the midst of trouble. This is not a confession made from the fourth floor of the library. This is not a confession of faith made at the dinner table of your favorite restaurant where all is calm, all is peaceful. This is a confession of faith made in the midst of trouble. Look at the language of verses 2 and 3. Evildoers assail. And the language this, to eat up my flesh. It's vivid of how David senses his enemies around him. He, he, um, adversaries, he speaks of foes. And we've seen that thus far throughout the Psalms. Even a hostile army encamps around him. As I was reading this, my mind immediately went to, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Where Peter speaks of your, your adversary, the devil, seeks to devour you. Enemies here in Psalm 27, enemies in 1 Peter 5. But in the midst 
of this, there is an affirmation of faith. There is confidence. My adversaries and foes, we read, stumble and fall. For those of you that are really into um, verb tenses, uh, verb um, uh, grammar, what, what this is, when, when David says they stumble and they fall, it's a perfect of certainty. It's so inevitable that it's as if it's already happened. It's implied, well, David says my enemies are going to stumble and fall, but I, implied, will not. He affirms his faith when saying, my heart shall not fear. And he ends this first initial section, yet I will be confident. What trouble are you facing today? What enemies surround you? And I'm not thinking necessarily about the enemy out there. How about the enemy in here? The enemy in our own hearts that James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your own disordered heart that what's what it wants and wants control and power? In one sense, we can't get away from our enemies because the enemy is us. But again, the good news that we will see in a bit of Jesus reminding His people that he who, is, he who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Well, not only what troubles, what enemies are surrounding you, who do you believe God to be? Where do you place your trust? These first few verses in Psalm 27 are asking those questions of us. Who do you believe God to be? Where do you place your trust? So in Psalm 27, we see confidence affirmed, confidence declared right off the bat. But we also see now confidence expressed, expressed through prayer. And we see that in verses 4 through 13. I want us to begin by looking at verses 4 through 6. Prayer as dwelling in God's house. A prayer for security in God's house. Um, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after. One thing. A singleness of purpose. I've been in an interesting conversation with some fellow pastors about the idea of we speak of our priorities, right? What are your priorities? And we've been joking with one another, but maybe there's a, a bit of truth. How can there be more than one? What is your priority? Here, David says one thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Notice, David says, I asked. He, he, he's, he's recognizing what the Lord needs to do. He, he's asking the Lord to do something. 
But he also says, I will seek after what I need to do. I was surprised to see that combination of both looking to the Lord, what you have to do, Lord, but also looking, as it were, in the mirror and seeing what I have to do. I ask the Lord, I'm seeking after the Lord. It's one thing, but you see it's in two actions. It's kind of like when Jesus was asked, what's the, the, the great commandment? What's the one commandment? And Jesus responds to the, to the one with a two. And here you see two actions. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To gaze, not a one-time glimpse or glance, but a steady, sustained focus. It is preoccupation with God's person. The beauty of God. There was no theologian I think better at looking at the beauty of God than the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was gifted at just writing and meditating upon the beauty of God. Here, the psalmist David is preoccupied with God, with His beauty, who God is. What's our preoccupation? I think for many of us who own a smartphone, it has an unbelievable power to preoccupy us. What's your preoccupation? Here the psalmist is praying that he would be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, but also to inquire in His temple. It's not only a preoccupation with who God is, it's a preoccupation with what God has said, His will. It's the beauty of His person and the wonder of His will. It's, it's one thing, the psalmist is saying, one thing to know you and to do what you command. And when I thought those words to myself, my mind went immediately to the first catechism or the children's catechism. There's a question in the children's catechism, uh, the first catechism, that should be in the shorter catechism. It's this, question number four. And kids, if you know it, join with me in the answer. How can you glorify God? By, say it, loving Him and doing what He commands. How can you glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. The psalmist wants to glorify God. He's loving Him for who He is. He's desiring to obey His commands. And then you will see... This, this, as he continues in terms of what the Lord will do, there's the temple and the shelter and the tent and the, and the rock. All of these metaphors expanding out from the house. That it's a temple, it's a shelter, it's a tent, it's a rock where God is present and where He will meet His people. In verse 5, we see God's actions that David is confident that the Lord will hide him, conceal him, and he will lift him up. In verse 6, we see how David reacts to God's actions. God acts, we react. God speaks, we speak. God loves, and we love in response. And what does David do in response to this confidence that God will hide him, conceal him, lift him up, lift him high upon a rock. What is his 
response. He's going to offer sacrifices. He's going to shout for joy. He's going to sing and make melody. Why? Because the Lord has been faithful again and again to deliver him. I remember the statement that uh, while every Christian may not have a voice with which to sing, meaning a good voice, every Christian has a song to sing. David is offering the sacrifices of praise because of his deliverance. So David first speaks of expressing confidence of prayer, dwelling in God's house. And now I believe there is a move closer in prayer to prayer in his face. And I mean that with all due reverence and all moving from prayer in his house to prayer in his face seeking God's face verses 7 through 12 prayer for security in God himself some general comments uh, many scholars have seen such a transition between verses 6 and 7 that they think it had to have been two separate psalms that are somehow brought together. Because they see such a a change in mood, and indeed there are changes in in pronouns. As he moves from talking about about the Lord to my Lord. From talking kind of at a distance as he moves closer to being very close. But it's not any problem for these two sections to be absolutely unified. Why? Because isn't that our life too? We, we are confident and then as we will see here, we are desperate. It, it exists at the same time in the same person. Here's a series of requests. And notice God, as it were, has already made the invitation, well, we see it in a moment in verse 8 where he says, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And so you will see David responding to that in all of these requests. Number one, hear and be gracious to me. In other words, David is still recognizing I'm a sinner. I need help. I need forgiveness. Hear, O Lord, be gracious to me. Answer me. And again, in verse 8, you see action. David is not passive. He's active. He, he hears the Lord, as it were, say, come close, seek my face. And David responds and says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? This idea of face is, is, a, is a picture of intimate fellowship. Our benediction today will be from Numbers 6. Turn your face to me. Let your face shine, as we hear in Psalm 67, I believe. It's that picture of intimacy and favor. And there's another request. Don't hide from me, God. Don't turn away. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me. All expressed with still absolute confidence in the Lord. Look at verse 10. For my father, 
and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. It's another cry of confidence. It's hypothetical for comparison, I believe. It's, it's like when Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Well, is David really concerned about father and mother leaving him? Well, maybe, but it's a picture. It's a picture of, of human love compared to divine love. And you know, in the normal course of human events, parents die before their children. Have you thought about that? Parents, as good and as faithful and as loving and as everything else a good parent should be, when they die before their children, they leave their children. But David is confident in the father that will not leave him. Another request we see in verse 11, teach me and lead me. We've heard that thus far in the Psalms. David, you see, is not only a worshiper seeking God's face. He is a pilgrim committed to God's way. And when he speaks of a level path, level ground, it's, it's not so that there could be comfort and ease. But Lord, I want to make sure progress on the road. Would you level the ground so I can walk securely? And then another request is don't give me over to my adversaries. There are false witnesses who are violent, we see in verse 12. David started in the house and he's made it, as it were, all the way to the face. He is confident and yet he is full of request to the Lord. How about you? Is there a mixture, a right mixture of confidence and need in your life, in your view of God, in your view of yourself? He is confident, but the Lord will take me in. The Lord will welcome me. The Lord will bring me into His house. I will dwell with the Lord forever as the Psalm 23 ends. Confidence is expressed through prayer as David seeks God, both for who God is in Himself and also the blessings that God gives. Psalm 27 concludes with a return to the direct statement of confidence in the Lord. However, it is not just that confidence is affirmed, but also that confidence is encouraged. And we see this in the last two verses of Psalm 27. Now, when David says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living... Who's he talking to? When he says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Who is the audience? I think most clearly David is talking to himself and he wants to hear himself talk and he's talking to others because he knows what is good for him 
is good for all of God's people. In looking at how Psalm 27 begins and ends with verse 1 and 14, one commentator from a couple of centuries ago said this, verses 1 and 14 are gold from the same mint. Indeed, they are. Because in verse 13 is a confession of confidence. It's again, confidence affirmed part two. Christian, what do you believe? The answer, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Um, This fall, in a few weeks, we're going to begin a new series entitled this, Christian, what do you believe? An exposition of the Apostles' Creed. And what does he believe? He believes that he will see the goodness of the Lord. He will look upon the goodness of the Lord. What is that? His gracious character. How God has revealed himself. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. We read in Exodus 34. And he says that I will see this. I will look upon this in the land of the living. Now, it may be tempting right off the bat to think, oh, yes, you know, like, eternal life, like down the road, of course, uh, I'll die and I'll live again. And it's that. But no, no, he is talking about in the here and now in this life, because God is with him. He is living. He is in the land of the living. Not only is their confidence affirmed, but you see in verse 14, a call for confidence, confidence encouraged. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. In the Jewish study Bible, which is one of the references I use, it's great to to see the Old Testament in particular from the perspective of a present-day Jew. And in its translation, it says this, look to the Lord. Wait for the Lord here. Look to the Lord. It's the same thing. God is worth looking at. God is worth waiting for. And between these two calls to wait for the Lord is the call to be strong. To be strong in the Lord, as Paul would say at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And you hear these words, let your heart take courage. And you may think of the recent Table Talk Bible study, John chapter 14. Next month, you'll see it in John 16, 33, where Jesus speaks of not letting your heart be troubled, but to take courage. It's no surprise that saints of great vision, one commentator writes, should sometimes pray prayers whose answers do not arrive till after they have gone to glory. But they see plenty of the goodness of the Lord before they go. They are the kind of people who know all about the alert, tiptoe expectancy, which is what Scripture means by wait for the Lord, and which gives His hard-pressed people heart and strength. Wait. For the Lord, he says. How about you right now? Are you waiting 
for the Lord? Are you taking matters into your own hands? There may be some short-term benefits by doing things to quote every child by myself. But the call here is to wait for the Lord, not to wait for circumstances to change, not wait until you feel right, but to wait on the Lord. And you know, again, who's David talking to, himself or others? He's talking to both. And my friends, a number of you, all of us, in one way or another, are having to wait for the Lord. A number of us, our, our hearts need courage. Our hearts need encouragement. And brothers and sisters, you all have a ministry to one another. Because this command, be strong and let your heart take courage, plural commands, wait for the Lord, plural commands. This is a call to the church. Personal assurance is not given so that we and only we can be personally assured. It is to strengthen others' faith. And my friends, there are some of you in this very place when my faith has been fainting, when my heart has been troubled, when courage was not found within any arm's length, you came alongside me and were God's instruments in God's hands. That's who we are to be for one another. Well, we see in Psalm 26, 7, that confidence is not in self, but in the Lord. Confidence that is affirmed, confidence that is expressed in prayer, and confidence that is encouraged. Well, we've examined and inspected the text, but by design, God's Word has also been examining and inspecting us. And in that light, an important question needs to be asked. Do you have this kind of confidence? Do you have the kind of relationship with the Lord? Confident, so confident that you can cry out to the Lord in the midst of trouble and not be embarrassed? Now, isn't that interesting? True Christian confidence means that you don't have to pretend that you have it all together. True Christian confidence is a recognition that the Lord has it all together. Do you have this kind of relationship with the Lord, the God who has made Himself known, so that you can cry out to Him in the midst of trouble and not be embarrassed? Because our confidence is established and strengthened when we remember two things about the one to whom this entire psalm directs our gaze. And the first thing is this, a relationship with Jesus is the one thing that is needed and necessary. Remember Jesus at the home of Martha and Mary in Luke 10. 
But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. My friends, have you chosen the good portion of sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him while the dishes still need to be cleaned, as it were? One thing is needed. And this one thing that is a relationship with Jesus is needed and necessary because Jesus and Jesus alone is the dwelling place of God with man. For there is one God and there is one mediator, Paul tells Timothy, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. At the end of the scriptures, We read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And as Paul tells the Colossian church, that it's in Jesus that the fullness of God dwells. And this one in whom the fullness of God dwells says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, Jesus is the dear refuge for our weary souls. The dwelling place that David longs to enter, that Christians do enter, is the palace and the castle of the king, because Jesus is the only one who has the ability to subdue us to himself, to rule and defend us, and to restrain and conquer all his and our enemies. Indeed, the Christian can confidently declare that Jesus is my light and my salvation, and that Jesus is the stronghold of my life, As we remember the good news that God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Are you ready for this? In the face of Jesus Christ. And my friends, it is in the face of Jesus Christ that Christians look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that our hearts and our minds and our very lives are distracted this way and that way. That we swivel around from crisis to crisis, from a sure thing to another sure thing, and yet we are reminded through your word that one thing One thing is needed. Lord, may we be people who ask of you one thing. May we be people who seek after one thing. To love you. To do what you command. To glorify you. Father, in a world of sin and sorrow and strife and evil and ugliness, you are beautiful.
would you direct the eyes of our heart to gaze upon your beauty as we see your beauty in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.